Let's get back to the last Sunday in this discussion of the shadows and, and kind of picking up where we left off last week on uh, the light of life. I showed you a picture last week, if you were here. I've shown it to you a couple times before. It's, it has great meaning for me. I have it in my office. I look at it a lot. I, I make the staff look at it. The staff's kind of sick of me talking about that picture. But I want to pick up this morning in that same place we left off with that picture and with a resurrected Jesus, one who has not just died for your sins, but, but a Jesus that is very much just as alive today as he was that very first Easter Sunday morning. It's just that sometimes, it's just that sometimes, when you live in the shadows of doubt or despair or discouragement, when you live in the real world as real people, well, sometimes you don't see him. So I want you to look at Michelangelo's masterpiece that I showed you last week, uh, entitled The Creation of Adam. It's located on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel um, in uh, the Vatican. Anybody seen this in person? Wow, that's amazing. Um, after church last Sunday, somebody texted me a picture of it. And I guess you're not actually supposed to take pictures of it. I think it was like a confessional moment for them saying, uh, hey, you know, I shouldn't have done this, but here's an actual picture. And uh, I just, I love this, um, this work. I tried to point out a few things to you last week. I just want to go over them again. Uh, it, it, check it out. Uh, if you notice the figure of God, look how God is extended towards man with great vigor. He's almost twisting his body, in a sense, to reach out and move as close as possible to man. I mean, his head is turned towards man. His gaze is like straight ahead and fixed on man. God's arm is stretched out, his fingers, his index fingers, stretched forward. You can almost see that every muscle is taut. It's as if, if you look at, it's as if the angels are carrying him and he's rushing towards Adam on this, you know, chariot of, 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 of angels. As one writer put it, it looks as if, even in the midst of the splendor of all of creation, God's entire being is wrapped up in his impatient desire to close the gap between himself and this man. He can't wait, and his hand comes within a hair's breadth of the hand of man. Some scholars, as they've studied the picture, they said, you know, a better title might, rather than the creation of Adam, might be the endowment of Adam. Because if you look at the picture, Adam's already been created here. He's been given physical life. His eyes are already open. He's already conscious. And what you see taking place here is Adam being offered the opportunity for life with God. All of man's potential, physical and spiritual, is contained in this one timeless moment, one art historian wrote. And what Michelangelo wanted to convey is God's incessant determination to be with the people he created. You. Me. God has come as close as he can, but he chooses to leave just a little space so that Adam can choose. And he waits for Adam to make his move. Now, Adam, as you look at him, he's a little bit more difficult to interpret. I mean, his arm is kind of partially extended towards God, but his body's kind of reclining in a lazy pose. He's almost leaning backwards as if he has very little interest at all in this connection. I mean, maybe he assumes, maybe he assumes that God, having come this far, will just close the gap. I mean, maybe, maybe he's indifferent to the possibility of touching his creator. 
Maybe he lacks the strength. Because if you look at the picture, it's fascinating. All he would have to do is lift a finger. This fresco took Michelangelo four years of intense labor, most of the time spent working on his back, upside down. The physical demands were torturous, and because he was forced to look upwards for hours while painting, he eventually became a person who could only read a letter if it was held at arm's length over his head. What I love about it, though, is that it's in many ways oftentimes the picture of our spiritual walk, or at least the picture of mine, it could be entitled John Eisman and God. It's a picture of a God who's so close, who's drawn so near, and of a, of a man like me who's often disinterested or unable to see that. Sometimes as if the harder God tries to get to his people, the less they even want to be with him. There's a story in the Old Testament of Moses. It's a fascinating story where God has drawn near to his people and he's, he's speaking directly to them at Mount Sinai and it doesn't go very well. The people start to beg Moses, you know what, don't let God speak to us directly anymore. It's too, it's too much. Instead, what we'd like is we'd like him to speak to someone else and then they can speak to us. We need a mediator between God and us. We don't really want to touch him. If you, if you had your Bibles with you this morning, you could look. There's a, a book in the Old Testament. It's called Deuteronomy. Moses, he, he gives a very important prophecy in response to their request. Don't come so close, God. We'd rather hear, hear about you from someone else. So Moses, in this book, Deuteronomy, predicts that God is going to raise up in the future another prophet who would be like Moses. The prophet would speak the words of God for the people and they would not have to speak anymore directly to God. In a sense, here's what Moses says in Deuteronomy. And the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brethren and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded. So, it's, the, it's Easter morning. A couple thousand years ago, the women have come back from the empty tomb. Things have begun to settle down in Jerusalem. And a couple of Jesus' lesser-known followers are out on a walk, on a road uh, to a town about seven miles away from, from Jerusalem called Emmaus. I want to pick up the story with you there. Luke 24, uh, starting in verse 13. The same day, the same day as the resurrection, Easter Sunday, Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, they were, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself, the resurrected Jesus, Jesus himself comes up and walks along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Now, most scholars, if you, if you do the work on this, most scholars agree uh, that these two disciples, these two disciples would have known Jesus. They would have walked with him, talked with him, slept with him, ministered with him, eaten with him. I mean, most scholars agree that the reason they didn't understand and, and didn't recognize Jesus as he came walking with them was because God had somehow chosen in a supernatural way to keep them at that moment from recognizing Jesus, at least initially. And I think that's probably true. 
But can I ask you to enter with me into a, a thought process that might be a, a little bit deeper in terms of what's going on here? Story goes on. He asked them, Jesus asked them, what are you guys discussing together as you walk along? Well, they stood still and their faces were downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, is this a big deal? Jerusalem had been in an uproar. Everybody knew what had happened. So Cleopas says to them, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Jesus says, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet. He was powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's, a, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning. They didn't find his body. And they came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels and, and said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. Now see, here's what I need you to see in this story. I need you to see the heart of the disciples. Because they had hoped he was going to do something. See, they say, they say to Jesus, you know, Jesus, we had hoped that, that this prophet, this Messiah was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped that Jesus was going to come through for us. I mean, we had hoped Jesus was going to save us from the, the Roman boot on our necks. We had hoped he was going to restore what was rightfully ours, the honor and the dignity of our people. We had hopes. And so here's my question for you this Sunday morning after Easter. Is it possible for you and I, is it possible for you and I to miss the very near and present God when he does not do for us what we had hoped is the reason we can't see him not because he's not there but because he looks and is, is, is acting differently than we wanted him to see I had hoped that I would get that promotion but instead it went to that suck up in the next cube and now not unlike Cleopas I found my face down uh, my face downcast and my soul aching I had hoped that if I followed Jesus, my marriage would be restored, but this woman you gave me is no different. We had hoped our son would stop with our drugs. We had hoped our daughter would finally break up with that guy. Can I get an amen from the fathers? <laughs> we had hoped the bill collectors would stop calling. We had hoped, we had heard stories about people getting checks in the mail. We had hoped... I, I had hopes for what Jesus was going to do in my life and, and with my life, and he didn't come through. Is it possible that Jesus is really alive and that he's really close? And that he has rushed towards you like the God of the chariots of angels, but you don't see him because you had hoped he would be or do something in your life. And when he showed up looking different, when he showed up being different, you missed him, even though he's been walking with you and beside you the whole time and you didn't see. It's a story of God so oftentimes in our lives. Is it possible that Jesus is closer than you think, even if he's not what you'd hoped? Here's the deal. Dash dreams hide the heavenly. 
Dash dreams. Hide the heavenly. This is a very, very real issue. Dash dreams hide the heavens. It's one thing when you lose a promotion. Sometimes you can get past that. But it's another thing when you lose a son or a daughter. I have three or four friends in our church now that have lost a young son in the last, three, in the last year and a half. I had hopes. But this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And now I don't see you anymore. Some people have said you're resurrected, but I can't find you. I'd hope for so much more. And you wind up on a journey on a road to a town where you don't know where you're going, and you feel sometimes just very, very alone. And so they walk. Story continues. Luke says that Jesus said to them, he said to them, Guys, how foolish are you? I mean, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken to you? I mean, you know the stories. Did not the Messiah have to suffer all of these things and then enter his glory? And then, here's Jesus on this long walk that probably takes most of the day. And beginning with Moses and then going through all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. The first thing Jesus does in these moments of despair and doubt and at times of crisis of faith, Jesus does just what I told you guys to do a couple weeks ago. He says, don't check your brains at the door. This isn't a made-up faith or religion. Or I'm, not, I'm, I'm trying to get you to believe something that makes some, no sense. He's saying, guys, look at the facts. In the midst of your emotional despair, when the disappointment of life is hiding you from the truth, you still need to know the truth. And he begins to walk them through the truth. You have to imagine that it took some amount of time as they walked. And he goes through the history with them of their people and the prophets and how they all pointed to this Jesus. Even their personal experience so far, even though it had been a disappointment, even though their personal experience had been a disappointment, he still was factually, actually, historically, and prophetically who he said he was. He was who he said he was despite their current situation in despair. That's the truth of God. See, I do this. I told you a few weeks ago, when I have these moments of doubt, I immediately just go back to the historicity of what I, what I believe. That Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most provable event in ancient times. There is nothing that compares to it. And Jesus comes along and he says, look, let's go through this. He says, let's start with Moses. He likely reminded them of Moses' prophecy right in Deuteronomy. Hey guys, remember when Moses told our people that they didn't want to hear from God any longer even though God had drawn close? And Moses said there was going to be one who was going to come, a mediator who would speak for and plead for and intercede for the people of God? That was that Jesus. Maybe he helped them to see that Moses himself was in, in a sense a type of Jesus. Do you know this? You see, you know the scriptures. Just one massive, um, in a sense, t typing of Jesus over and over. The story of the scripture is one story pointing towards Jesus. The life of Moses does nothing but point towards Jesus. Think through it, right? Uh, Pharaoh uh, kills all of the male Hebrew babies, right? But Moses was saved. Herod kills all the babies, babies in and around Bethlehem, but Jesus escapes. Moses fled from Egypt, but later returned. Jesus fled to Egypt and later returned. 
Moses went up to the mountain to receive the law. Jesus goes up to the mountain to give a sermon, a new law. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant through the blood of young bulls. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant through his own blood. Moses didn't eat or drink for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus fasted while being tempted in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses lifted up the bronze snake in the wilderness, and Jesus said in a similar way, he himself would be lifted up and all who would gaze upon him would be saved. It's not just Moses. What the scripture wants us to see over and over is this is not just, this is not just a story, a book of miscellaneous stories. That Jesus is where it begins and it ends. It's convincing. It's profound. Maybe he showed them or spoke to them some of the stuff that you can see in this video. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. Can't you see Jesus just going one story after another with him as he walks? God
guys, let me tell you about this one. Let me tell you about this one. I know that you're not saying, I know that your hopes haven't come true. I'm not, I, I know that Rome is still in charge. I know that things haven't turned out exactly how you hoped they would. But that doesn't change the truth. The truth is that God has come and he's close and he's alive and he's walking with you. Luke goes on in verses 24 to 25. He says, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus just was going to continue on as if he was going to go further. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. There was something about this man that they liked. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each, each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And he got up, they got up, returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and, and those with them. They assembled them together. They said, it's true. The Lord has risen. He's appeared to Simon. And the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. I love what their hearts said. At some point, they're walking with Jesus. Even though they don't recognize him, something began to happen within their hearts. Their hearts were burning when he was talking because Jesus came to restore to them hope amidst their disappointment. Key to understand this, he did not change their circumstances. Their circumstances were no different, but something happened to their hearts. Israel remained under Roman control, but their hearts were no longer under Roman control. He walked with them through their circumstances into their disappointment, and his presence and his truth set their hearts free and on fire. You see, the story of the Bible is not primarily the story of a people who are trying to get to God. It's a story of a God who's trying to get to his people. And when you sense him, and when you see him, when your eyes are open to the fact that he's with you, even in the midst of pain or disappointment or discouragement or doubt, it really does change everything. I found a great story as I was working on this. A woman named Sophia Cavaletti. She's a researcher. She's pioneered the study of spirituality in young children. She finds that children often have an amazing perception that far surpasses anything they've already been taught. There's something going on and they're somehow spiritually connected at levels that maybe as adults, because our circumstances conspire to make us see that these children sometimes can connect to God in ways that are different. One three-year-old girl raised in an atheistic family, no church contact at all, no Bible in the home, asked her father, where did this world come from? And he answered her in strictly naturalistic scientific terms. But at the end, to be fair to her, he said, I do need to tell you that there are some people who say that all of this comes from a very powerful being, and they call him God. And at this... The little girl started dancing around the, the room with joy. I knew what you told me wasn't true. It's him. It's him. And it sounds a lot like two disciples walking along a road to me and having their eyes open and their hearts open, their hearts set ablaze and going, I knew, I knew it was true. I knew it. It's you. It's you. We, you and I, have an incredible capacity as human beings to be walking with God and to have him available to us and to just miss him. 
We've been invited to walk in the light, and so often we choose to walk in the shadows. John Ortberg wrote an amazing book um, called God is Closer Than You Think. And he writes in regards to this concept of what kind of people can live in the everyday presence, reaching back towards this God that reaches towards him. He says, well, certainly it would be the devoted and the wise, but it's not just them. He says it's people who are chronically unsatisfied. It's restless people. It's demanding people. It's whiners and complainers and the impossible to please. It's the doubters. It's those in despair and pain. Some of you know the story of Jacob in the Old Testament. He was born son of Isaac. He had a brother named Esau. And he stole Esau's birthright. You, you might know the story. He, he, he wasn't a good guy. He was a liar and a deceiver. And he, he tricked his father. And so one night, Jacob, who was no spiritual giant, is on the run from Esau because Esau is trying to get his revenge. He's trying to kill Jacob because he had cheated him out of this birthright. And Jacob stops for the night while he's on the run. The text in the Bible says, just quote, in a certain place. Nowheresville. It's a Hebrew way of saying no particular place. It could have been Long Valley or Randolph or Chester or your office, your cube. But that night, Jacob had a dream. And he saw a ladder with angels ascending and descending. And God says to him, this liar, this cheater, in a place unlike no different than anything else. He says in Genesis chapter 28, verse 4, he goes, Jacob, I'm the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, and I am with you. And I will watch over you wherever you go. And the story goes on in in verses 16 and 17. And when Jacob awoke from this sleep, he thought, church, hear this. He thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I wasn't aware of it. Surely the Lord was right here in his place, and I wasn't aware of it. He says, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Apparently, as we've seen on the road to Emmaus, it is possible for God to be present with somebody and that for that person to not recognize that he's even there. Ortberg goes on, reflecting on the line, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he says there is more than one form of sleep. It happens sometimes, the the birth of a baby, an unexplained healing, a a marriage that was headed for divorce, and and, and an unexplained healing, as I said, and something, somebody wakes up, somebody's eyes get open to the fact that God is right there in the middle of an ordinary place. This road, this house, my family room, my minivan, and the striking phrase is, and I wasn't aware of it. Somehow I was looking in the wrong direction. Somehow I let my disappointment or my discouragement or my unmet expectations cloud over my eyes. Apparently it's possible that God is closer than you think. See, that's Jacob's discovery. That was Cleopas and the other disciples' discovery. They were walking right along with them, but they they couldn't see him through their despair. Jacob wakes up and he calls this place where he had this dream Bethel. It means the house of God, the place where God is present. It's transformed for him from a certain place, nowhere special, to the place inhabited by God himself. Please understand, church, that God does not live in this room. This is not the place inhabited by God. You are. He inhabits you. He walks with you. Where you go, that's where the house of God now is. And what if that began to sink in? What if 
What if in ordinary moments in our lives, in your cube on Monday, in a room, when you're doing your emails, at your job, in a hospital room, in your car, on vacation, what if all those places, instead of just being compartmentalized, became Bethel, the house of God, because you saw God there? What if suddenly you were aware of it? Because Jacob's life started to change when he became aware that God showed up in these places. Eventually, he decided to take an enormous risk and reconcile with his brother Esau. Instead of ripping him off, he wants to give back to him. So he, he decides he's going to send extravagant gifts. He, he sends 220 goats. He sends Esau 220 ewes and, and rams. He sends him 30 camels and 50 cows and bulls, 30 donkeys, and a cat. Actually, I made the cat part up. That's not in the story. <laughs> Cat's not a biblical animal. God doesn't even like cats. I digress. You see, Jacob sees his brother. Because once you start to see, once your eyes are open to the presence of God, despite your doubt and despair, Jacob sees his brother after two decades of separation and hatred, and he's got to be wondering what's going to happen. I've been making, you know, I've been, I've been reaching out to him, but I don't, I mean, what's going, to, what's going to become of me? And we wait to see if Esau is going to kill him. And Genesis 33, 4 describes it this way. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him, and he threw his arm around his neck, and he kissed him. And they wept. And after a whole childhood of living as enemies and two decades as living as strangers, now they're brothers again. And Jacob makes one of the great statements of Scripture in Genesis 33. He says to Esau, when I saw your face, it was like seeing the face of God. Because once you meet God at Bethel, once you see God in an ordinary moment, in an ordinary place, you never know where he's going to show up again you could start seeing him anywhere. You could begin to even see him in the face of somebody that's been your mortal enemy for 20 years. That's the story of the Christ. The risen Christ. He's closer than you think. I had a friend that texted me this week and he was having a really hard day. And he, he just reached out and said, I just want to let you know, I'm really, you know, tough day for me today. And I was working on this message and I said, I'm going to pray for you right now, the prayer of Elijah. And I gave him this little verse. Because he's closer than you think. You might not see him, but he's there. In a city called uh, Dathan, a servant of, of, of a prophet, an Old Testament prophet named Elijah, he was terrified because he, he and Elijah were surrounded by the enemies of Israel. And here's the story, and this is my prayer for you today, too. In 2 Kings chapter 6, when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, no, my Lord, what shall we do, the servant asked. This is not working out the way I thought it was going to. I'm working with Elijah. I thought this was going to be a cakewalk. I thought everything was going to be better now that I'm walking with Jesus. Romans are still here. Kids are still rough. Boss is still a jerk. Oh no, what should we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Because those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And here's Elijah's prayer. My prayer for my friend last week. And Elijah prayed. Open his eyes, Lord, so that he might see. 
And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked, and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. And that's the prayer that concludes this whole series on the shadows. That in our darkness, and in our discouragement, and in our fears and doubts and disappointments, that as we walk the normal roads of our lives, as we drive our highways, that God would open our eyes, that we might have eyes to see a God that is so real, so historical, so factual, so alive, so close. Dina, throw, throw the Michelangelo picture up just in conclusion, because what if, I mean, what if Michelangelo got it right? What if it does really express our spiritual reality? What if God is really reaching for you? Contorting himself just to touch you. What if he's available 24-7 all of the time, ready not just to walk you with you, but to strengthen you and carry you and refresh you at work in your life all the time, in all places, no matter what your past is, no matter where you've been, no matter what your current spiritual condition might be? Because that's the truth according to Jesus. This is supposed to be true of those of us that follow. It's not just Enoch and Abraham or Peter or James and John. The expectation of Jesus to these disciples that he walked with is that there is an unseen river of life, uh, a flow of Christ, the power of God available to you. Wherever you are, Bethel, in an office, in the city, at a desk, in a high school classroom. It can happen for you if you're working a job at a gas station in Flanders. It can happen for plumbers and, and, and traders and, and homemakers and retired folks. It is available. He is walking next to the CEOs and the seventh graders. It can flow through the life of a young single mom who's struggling with the demands of raising children. It can surge in hospital beds where a solitary individual, even now, could be lying in the valley of the shadow of death. He is walking right beside you. And I know sometimes the hopes get dashed and despair hides him. But it doesn't change the facts of who he is. Come on up, guys. For centuries, people have stood in line to view this picture of God and Adam on the ceiling in the Sistine Chapel. But what if the miracle that's hinted at on that fresco became a reality in your life? What if God, who is a much greater painter than Michelangelo, is at work in the canvas of your ordinary day? Because it could happen anywhere when you begin to see God showing up, when you begin to have your eyes open to him. It can happen anywhere, anytime, for anyone. Anybody's age or season of life or temperament or job, there is no obstacle to God at all. He is closer than you think. Even when he is being hidden by the shadow of doubt and disappointment. And church, look at the picture. All you have to do is lift a finger. Let's pray. Father... I pray the prayer of Elijah over your people. Open our eyes so that we might see and walk with the light of life. In Jesus' name.